At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. But that last slide did sort of look like uh, Cindy and I, as we pled with the Lord for wisdom in this parenting venture. Uh, my eyes are older, I need more light, so boom, there we go. All right, the miracle of the book light. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a privilege to be with, be with you today. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Um, as, as these guys said, my name's Ben Thacker. Uh, been a member here about five years now. My family's been here with us. Uh, I teach school, and I'm a dad of... <laughs> can't do this. <clears throat> I can't steer up already. Uh, a dad of four great kids, and um, not because they're mine. <laughs> Brought my own cheering section today, so... <laughs> so... Anybody get that line, John? You and David just jump them back there. It'll be all right. <clears throat> uh, one of the most exciting times of my life came on the day, March 25th, 1988. It was the day that I became a dad. It was a thrilling and terrifying moment uh, that culminated nine months of preparation and as far as, you know, the pregnancy part. <laughs> the, the other preparation uh, is continuing. <laughs> uh, David was to be the first grandchild of either side of our family. So you can imagine, you know, moms and dads were there. There's lots of pacing. There's been lots of preparation, painting, the baby's room, uh, uh, showers, gifts, uh, and, and the whole the whole nine yards. Uh, the day came, it arrived, and so did David. Uh, we began life as a family. Uh, we felt that we were somewhat prepared. Uh, I mean, Cindy and I had a dog together. I mean, <laughs> so uh, we did discover we did have some slightly differenting dog parent styles. Uh, and uh, but I kind of sloughed that off as a. We can handle this. And, uh, but there were still some <laughs> nagging doubts. Uh, what followed was, of course, the normal. Sleepless nights, weary days. Uh, and, and at the same time, I had this in my mind. I was thinking, how hard can this be? I mean, just a baby. Uh, and, and we're bigger than he is. I mean, we can, we can take care of this. Uh, I mean, he was cute, and he had red hair. I mean, what could be wrong? What's wrong? What's not the light? Uh, and, but around David's first birthday, we found out we were pregnant again. And so it all started again. The preparations, the excitement, the thrill, the, oh, no, we got a girl. You know, those kind of you know, things coming. Uh, and we, and we weren't that concerned. I mean, after all, we were, there's two of us, there's two of them. We can go one-on-one if we have to. I'm still bigger than he is. You know, we can still wrestle and still win. Uh, we began to see, though, a weakness in our parenting as 
Christy, our second born, was born and grew and became more and more mobile. As she became more mobile, the possibility of control uh, lessened. And as she became even more mobile, the <clears throat> we weren't really prepared for sibling conflict. Uh, we weren't really prepared for resistance to our instructions. <laughs> I mean, we know what we're talking about. And, and we weren't really prepared for feelings of failure uh, and the frustration and conflict between not only two siblings, but two parents. And so there was this feeling of uneasiness that was under an undertone in our, in our especially between Cindy and I, because we were supposed to have it all together. Uh, I mean... We came from two good families. and So you fast forward and, and three years down the road, and we were moving back to Atlanta from Memphis. I just finished up school there, and, and we're moving back to Atlanta area, and we have two kids. Uh, we're, we're doing the best we can, because that was kind of what the, most of the advice included was, you know, just do the best you can by those kids. You, you, you try harder, do better. And, but the kids were getting bigger. And uh, so was our frustration and desperation. Still, we had no game plan, no strategy. Uh, but Sydney and I were committed Christians. We'd both been walking with the Lord. I mean, she, she has a child and family development degree from the University of Georgia. I mean, she's supposed to know all this stuff, right? And, and, and hey, I mean, what better uh, guy to be? I mean, I'm a Georgia grad. I'm, uh, I went to seminary. I mean, I mean, A's in Greek and Hebrew. I mean, I should be able to do this, right? I mean, between the two of us, we felt committed. We felt qualified. We felt dedicated. We were, we were, we were on it. I mean, we really wanted to honor God in our family and with our family. I was even a part-time youth pastor. How much more dedicated could you be? Put up with that. <laughs> we desperately wanted to have a family that honored the Lord, but at the same time, we both knew that we were failing. And it was that uncertainty that, that rocked us uh, to, our, to our core. Uh, and at that point, we desperately wanted to get some help we desperately wanted not to fail. We desperately wanted to be successful in this one most important venture that God had given us to do. I mean, lives depended on it. I had two kids that our this, I mean, it was real life. And yet we didn't have a clue. We were scared to death. Going 90 miles an hour without a steering wheel into this venture called parenting. And so today I want to share with you um, what God revealed to us. Um, so, but to start with, I want, I want to show you some different parenting patterns. Uh, some of these are Christians. Christians do this. Some are not. But um, there, there are a few parenting patterns I want to share with you first. First is the authoritarian parent. This is the parent that says, Follow my rules or else. 
This parent is like the drill sergeant, barking orders to his, to his troops. Uh, no offense, Joseph, on the Marines over there. Uh, there are high demands in this parenting strategy, but little nurturing or feedback. Not much tenderness in this parenting style. And this parenting style usually results in passive-aggressive behavior out of the kids or just flat-out rebellion because they start pushing back against their parents. The second is a, is a threatening, repeating parent. This parenting style typically has uh, obedience involved, but there's some resistance from the kids. It, it goes kind of like this. Little Sally, pick, pick up your toys. Little Sally, one, two. Little Sally, do you hear me? Little Sally hasn't moved because she knows you're going to keep counting. And she knows that once that voice pitch and volume hits this mark, she has to do something. But until you get there, she's cool. She can do whatever she wants. Little Sally, I'm not going to count again. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> I know you are. You're not there yet. And so it goes. The child basically runs the household. They do what they want until they feel like the parent is about to blow. And then they move when they want. And this parenting style is frustrating for both parent and child. And eventually the child says, I'm just not moving. I'm going to do what I want to do, whether you count or not. I can take whatever you dish out because you're not really going to act anyway. Next is the permissive parent. These parents tend to be lenient, allowing the children to do pretty much what they want to avoid conflict at all costs. The modern translation of this parent would be something like this. We're not allowing the children to do whatever they want. We're merely allowing them to discover the world on their own. And you can see how they twist that to where it sounds so good, but it is so wrong. Parents in this mode are sacrificing their role to be their child's buddy. That level of relationship to them is more important than their parental role. They often ask for their child's permission when they are really wanting something to be done. Example, uh, we'll stay with little Sally. Uh, you and the, Sally and the family is about ready to leave church, and here's the way that might go. Uh, you're ready to leave. Little Sally, are you ready to go now? Okay. You're asking a two-year-old's permission. Who's in charge? Instead, it should be something like this. Little Sally, we're leaving now. Please come to Daddy. It's a little different, right? It tells little Sally who's in charge. Little Sally's not saying, I'm not ready to go yet. I'm playing with my friends. They avoid conflict at all costs. These children have choices that they have not earned the right to make. Now, 
why would you ask a one or two year old, would you, when you're at dinner or at supper at your house, would you like the red sippy cup or the blue sippy cup? Just give them a cup. <laughs> They'll drink it. They have no reason, no, no, they haven't earned that freedom. But the permissive parent wants to avoid conflict. The child grows up to be self-centered because the world has rotated around them. When they're ready to go, what sippy cup they want to use, and you can find examples of your own. They're insecure because there's lack of boundaries. There's no, don't do this, do this, obey. Eventually, this causes clashes with authority figures that are real authority figures in their life and that actually hold them to some level of standard, either teachers, coaches, principals, police, <laughs> those kind of folks. <laughs> and they end up having poor academic achievement because someone's actually telling them to do something, and they're saying, well, I, I don't, uh, it's my choice. I don't want to do that right now. So they don't fulfill their God-given potential. Modern parenting has also coined parenting styles such as the helicopter parent. The helicopter parent hovers constantly to guard and protect and ensure the success of their child. Or there's also the bulldozer or lawnmower parent. I've gotten caught in a couple of those uh, in my teaching years. Parents who mow down every obstacle in their child's path that will keep them from achievement or success or being thought of as someone who made the team. They want to remove any no answers from their child's life. They want to remove conflicts, obstacles, consequences of failure from the lives of their children. So conflict avoidance is still the most important thing in these parents' minds. These parenting styles are found in parents who are religious as well as those who are not. The results of parenting using these styles still end up with the same, pretty much the same results, regardless of the parents' beliefs or lack thereof. The children that are coming out of these parenting environments are a mess. They're a mess emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. It's important to note that teenagers from Christian homes the kind of homes that would be represented here today, are turning away from the faith at about the same pace as any other folks. In fact, Christian kids are turning away from the church in record numbers, in record numbers, and they find that their faith is not working. That's what they call it. That's their words. Southern Baptist Convention data indicates that the church is currently losing 70 to 88% of their youth after their freshman year in college. 70% of teenagers involved in church youth groups stop attending church within two years of high school graduation. Josh McDowell and David Bellis in their book, The Last Christian Generation, say, only 33% of church youth have said that the church will play a part in their lives when they leave home. A Barna study about 20-somethings found that the majority of 20-somethings, 
61% to be exact, were involved in church at one point during their teen years, but now they are spiritually disengaged. It is important to look at why this has been occurring. Let me share some research findings. Uh, a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers by Smith and Denton said 32% left behind their faith because of intellectual skepticism or doubt. They said things like it doesn't make sense or some stuff is just too far-fetched for me to believe. But what I want you to grab onto is this next statement. A larger majority reasoned, in quotes, they didn't see how faith applied to their lives. This reason, the reason I'm including this in this talk, is that this directly indicts our parenting. If we want to see why the faith of our kids doesn't work for them and why they are not owning their faith, we have nowhere to look than to ourselves as parents. Children who turn away from the faith of their families do not see their parents live out their faith in a way that is real, honest, and visible to them. They may attend church. They may go to gospel kids, but they see or hear nothing of the gospel life outside of this one day of the week. Those kids are turning away from the faith. So how do we parent? So that the faith we have is real. So that it applies to their daily lives. And our children own their own faith. If our faith is the most important thing we will teach our children, then how do we do it? How do we hope to raise morally responsible adults? We have to be purposeful in doing so. And I say that again for emphasis. Not only I say it, but God says it. God says we have to be purposeful in doing so. It will not just happen by them being in your home or being in the church. It will not happen. We are charged, parents are charged with the greatest responsibility of depositing truth into the consciences of our children. And this is our greatest responsibility. But unfortunately, as we found out, it was the one part of parenting we were the least prepared to do. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're a lot better parents than I am. But that's one area that I was not prepared for. They can teach you how to change a diaper. They can teach you how to burp. They can teach you how to put them on your shoulder and walk like this so they bounce nice. But that moral conscience deposit skill, they didn't teach me that. My dad didn't tell me that. My mom didn't tell me that. So how are we supposed to do it? If it is the most important thing we do as parents, why do we not talk about it more? Why are we not taught as parents how to do that? Well, here's what we learned. The problem is not wrong motives, but wrong methods. Thankfully, there are great resources now to help believers flesh this out. But it all starts from the command that comes from Deuteronomy 6. 
That's where, we're, that's where we're looking today in our passage. Here's the sermon in one statement. If you're taking notes, this is one statement you want to get. Effective parenting can only occur when we intentionally and sensitively communicate to our children how the Word of God permeates every area of our daily existence. Effective parenting can only occur when we intentionally and sensitively communicate to our children how the Word of God permeates every area of our daily existence. Let's look at our passage. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 7. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord. The God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verses 1 through 3 contain verses that call us to obedience and then gives us the promise and provision of long life. We are to take care to teach these things to our children and to our children's children so that we can possess the land. It is a discipleship process. These verses are to the Old Testament what Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 are to the New Testament. Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's pretty straightforward, kids, by the way. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by either overparenting or underparenting, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a specific call to obedience for our children and for us as parents. And the blessings that accompany it followed about how fathers are to teach their children. It says in Hebrews that discipline is not pleasant, but it must happen in the life of a child. But afterward, it will yield the fruit. Those who, taught, who are taught by it will bear the fruit of righteousness. We have to discipline our kids. Verse 4 begins with the Shema. It's the central first and central prayer of the Hebrew prayer book. It was probably the first section of Scripture that a Hebrew child would learn, declaring that the Lord is one. He is the one and only. He is unique. He is unity and diversity. He is uniquely other. He is to be worshipped. It was the first section of scripture that a Hebrew child learned. And as a result of them learning and putting this in this place in the scriptures, it tells all the Hebrew readers 
that what's coming next is important. You memorize this part and do this. Teaching, expanding, and expanding the idea of how important this is for Hebrew children showed the people how important it was and foundational to the spiritual health of their families and to all Hebrews. Verse 5 is a command for us that is comprehensive, exclusive, practical, and valuable. Let's identify three parts of it. It says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and with all... Heart with your soul and with all your might. The first section is love the Lord with all your heart. The heart in Hebrew is the seat of all your affections. So we're to love the Lord with all our heart. He is to, uh, is to hold the highest place in our affections. Matthew 6.21 emphasizes this form Uh, from the New Testament by saying where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, There can be no rivals. There can be no idols in our hearts. Unfortunately, we elevate our children to this place at times and make them an idol in our family. But our children cannot be elevated to a place higher than our affection for the Lord. Our culture encourages us to love our children. You must love them. And in doing so, they place them at the center of the family instead of Christ. Even Christian families do this. We cannot make them idols. I heard a Beth Moore podcast this week talking about how we damage our children by coddling them. And not allowing them to be told no. Not allowing them to try and fail things at things. Not allowing them to have to work through the negatives of life. And we are damaging them by not allowing them to experience any negative experiences. We need to learn how to handle failure. We need to learn how to wait for our needs to be met. We need to learn how to set our affections aside for someone else. What we desire aside for someone else. We have to learn how to delay our gratification and how to work toward it. Learning to wait is an important skill for our children. We have to teach them that. It's not easy, but we have to teach them that. We have to teach them to share and to put the needs of others ahead of their own. Handling the nose of life teaches us how to follow and trust God. We have to trust God for his provision, for his timing, and that his plans are best. When we don't tell our children no or don't teach them to wait, we teach them that God is a vending machine and that whatever we want, he will give it to us or he's not really good or he's not really God or that I can just go find my needs met somewhere else, which is what a lot of teenagers do and children. 
When we put our child at the center of our family instead of Jesus, we are warping that child's sense of who they are by making them the center of our universe. We are putting them at the center of our universe instead of Jesus. That's idol worship. So a question I have for you today, what loves would your children say are first in your life based on what they see? What are the affections of your heart? Next point, love the Lord with all your soul. We are to diligently teach them how to love the Lord with all their soul. The soul represents the mind, the will, and the emotions of man. The Lord has to be the priority in these three areas. We often tie our joy to the happiness of our children. Now, yes, we want our children to be happy, but we cannot make that our greatest aim. We have to teach them. We have to discipline them. And they're not going to be too happy about that at times. They're not going to be your best pals. Be the parent. Put truth into their mind. Help them to think theologically correct. Help them to understand who God is and that we are fallen, we are broken, and that we are not the ones to be worshipped, but he is. They have to understand things and think theologically. They have to act responsibly. They have to have their wills molded. They don't come with a perfect will in a package. You have to mold their will. That often comes with a no. They have to think theologically. They have to act responsibly. And we have to help them process and adjust their emotions with a biblical worldview. You have to help them process the emotions that they experience in life. We cannot, as adults, be controlled by our emotions, and yet we say it's okay for our children and let them fly off the handle if they don't get what they want. We're teaching them that they are the center of the universe. And if they scream loud enough and kick loud enough and embarrass mommy and daddy enough, they'll give in and give them what they want. We have to teach our kids to love the Lord with all their soul, their mind, their will, emotions. Because we're fallen. And our mind, will, and emotions are broken. So what do your conversations... And the way you deal with life, teach your children about having him and loving him with all your soul. What do they hear you talk about when you get home from work? About how you flew off the handle at work? How you hate your boss? They hear mom and dad fussing about this or that and not teaching up, uh, treating each other with kindness and gentleness and respect and honor and love. What do those conversations sound like? What do those little ears hear? Do they see mom and dad care about each other, love each other, touch each other in a loving way? Or is it two ships passing in the night 
Oh, you got the groceries? Yeah, you got the kids? Okay, see. Or cooking and cleaning and, and, you know, never a positive word, never a tender moment, never a hug, never a kiss on the forehead. I mean, between you? What do you kids see? Because the husband-wife relationship is crucial to their security. What are your conversations and the way you deal with life? Teach your kids about loving God with all your mind and your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. Third, to love, love the Lord with all your strength. All your strength. The strength of man here in Hebrew represents the might or energy of one's body. The energy. So where do we put our energies? Because if you answer that question, that tells you a lot about where your treasure is. When we exhaust ourselves on the ball field, or when we exhaust our energies over homework, or when we exhaust our energies over work, or our own vocational ventures, or our hobbies, and, and, and all we can do at night is put them in the bathtub and soak, and I'll be back in a minute. And you, and you struggle, and, and you're exhausted, and you come back, and you get them all bathed, and you put them in bed, and you collapse them. You collapse in your chair and you pull up, oh, my phone, <laughs> or your Netflix, and you're exhausted because you've placed all of your strength and all of your energies in everywhere else but your children. What are you telling them is important? It's not the ball field. It's not the work. It's not the Netflix. It's not the hobbies. It's not your vocation. It's not your whatever it is that must demand your time and your energies, your best. When I get home from work, and when, I, when the kids were small, it was like, I'm tired, man. I've been coaching. I've been teaching. I've been talking all day long. I've been yelling at kids and getting teams ready. And I come in the door, and it's like, <laughs> and, and so, but you have to, when I'm coming up the steps and I'm coming in the house, it's like, <sighs> okay, <laughs> here I come. And so you've got, dads, you just got to do that. You've got to find that next gear for your kids. Your wife needs it. She needs you to come roaring in there with energy, positive energy. Like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> we can't let all of those things take priority over our children's spiritual training and growth. And, and when you get to later years, in the teenage years, and somebody you finally come to about this, your child has started acting up or they started doing stuff you really don't want them doing. And then you come in, you say, now, this is what God says. <laughs> They're going to turn away. Because now all you want to do, they've got it figured out. They know. They got it figured out. They know you, all you want to do now is control it. And you're using God as your hitman. And they're not going to listen to that. They're going to reject you, the scriptures, God, everything. 
because it wasn't important back then. The ball field was more important. Your job was more important. Your blah, blah, blah was more important. Your Netflix was more important than teaching me spiritual truth and putting God's word in my conscience. And so now I got my own conscience, thanks. I formed my own. And I formed it by watching videos or playing video games or my friends or on the bathroom wall or wherever they get it. I'm not going to let you form it at that point. And you hadn't earned the right to do it. They are too honest or they're too selfish to believe that something that they have already seen not work in the lives of their parents is going to work for them. You have proven to them that they don't need God because you didn't either. God was a convenience. Church was a convenience. The relationship with Christ was not a conviction. And it was not where you put all of your strength. So I have a question for you. Does the use of your time and energy and the way you use it, does that communicate to your children that God is the priority in your life? You have to answer that question. God tells us in verses 6 and 7 what our daily life should look like if we are obeying him to diligently instruct our children. Verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. We are to teach them diligently. Now, this is a great Hebrew word, and I, and I can see my dad on my back porch when I was a little kid. And, and this would be a picture of a guy who has a knife and a whetstone, a W-H-E-T stone. And if you know anything about that, you may not. I don't know a whole lot about it either, but here's what I saw him do. He put something on that stone, and he would take that knife, and he would take that knife slowly down the whetstone. And he would turn it over and put it back around this way. And he'd only go one direction on that stone. And it took a while. And we would sit on the back porch and I'd watch him do it. And I thought, wow, this must be like brain surgery or something. Because he is just, I mean, he is just focused like laser beams. And he was just, and he'd turn it, and he'd turn it. Make sure the stone had some, whatever that magical fluid was. You know, and he put that on there. And he was diligently sharpening that knife to a razor's edge. By doing it one stroke at a time. Every time it was the same direction. And he took such patience with it. And such care and such focus. That's the kind of concentration and intent intention with which we have to parent. That's how we diligently parent. That's how we diligently place God's truth in the lives of our children with care, with every stroke is measured so that they are as sharp as they can possibly be to be able to go out into the world 
and live for Jesus. So that their skills are sharp. Their minds are sharp. They are theologically in tune with God and with his truth and can live a biblically legitimate life out there. There's three ways that I just want to share with you real quick that are, are ways that we fleshed this out in our family. Can I, can I tell you these three right quick? All right, here we go. First was to develop a family identity. You have to develop a family identity. We tried to establish the way that Thackers did things. And I was mine, this is the way God is doing things. But this is the way we're going to express it. You follow me? So we have established a family identity by encouraging and teaching our children how the family would operate. I would, we'd be going down the road, and I'd say, just out of the blue, I'm so glad I'm a Thacker. There's all these guys back here, you know. They're, they're just, what, what was that? I'm so glad I'm a Thacker because you know what? Thackers are, and I'd put in some biblical characteristic. Thackers are just honest. You know, the other day, you know, we we're talking about this thing. And I didn't want to tell mom this, but, you know, we're just honest, and we're trying to be straight up with each other. And, and I would put in, or we would put in, a, a quality. You know, we're, we're giving, or we're, you know, you know Thackers are, are honest, and we're, we're n- not going to lie to each other. We are not liars because lying cuts at the very root of a of the of a relationship tree and we're just not going to do that we're going to tell each other the truth in gentleness and in love and just kind of let it toss it out there what are they going to do sometimes we talk about it and Cindy kind of yes and then we she, and she'd put in she'd go in and, and she's much better at it than I am anyway and so she'd kind of go and we're back and forth it's kind of tag you're up go and then she go and then the kids kind of that's building your family identity. And, and, and we would teach them biblical values. And we'd say things like, you know what? And this is when they're doing something they weren't supposed to do, which was often. Thackers don't act that way toward their, toward their, toward their, toward their, toward their siblings, their brothers and sisters. Thackers don't act that way. Thackers don't treat their, kid, their brothers that way or their sisters that way. Thackers obey even when it hurts. Or when it's not easy. Or when it's not what we want to do. It became a way of life. The Thacker name began to mean something to these kids. And eventually, and as, as a result, God's name and reputation began to mean something to those kids. Because it represented us. As we represented him to a broken world. It became a way of life for our kids as they went into the world and lived with each other in an unselfish way. We taught them to be unselfish and others-oriented and honest and trusting and loving. So you got to develop a family identity. What's yours? Try it on your way home with your kids. They may not understand, but They'll get it. Just keep at it. Keep going. That's the diligent part of it. It's not going to be done with one stroke. Second thing we did was we, we looked for ways to teach into life. 
We looked for ways to teach in life. We took opportunities to teach our children based on what we saw in the world around us. Now, this took place in the grocery store or at church or at school or wherever we were. You know, we'd get back in the van. We'd kind of chit-chat it up. And we would find opportunities. We'd take those opportunities, and we had great, great discussions about, uh, about life and how God wants us to interact with each other and with the people around us. Great discussions resulted from using that strategy of training. And if you think about it and you ask God to show you those situations that are timed right for your kids, he will. He'll show you. And he'll put those opportunities in front of you. There are plenty of opportunities to teach into the moment or to use examples that we just saw daily. They're all around you. There's a kid screaming and hollering in the grocery aisle. Whoops, not going down that aisle. (laughs) You think that behavior honors God when we talk about it? Or whatever it was. Third way, live in a way that explains how real Jesus is in your life. Live in a way with your children that explains how real Jesus is in your life. Now, if he's not real in your life, you need to take care of that part first. But if he's real and present, then you explain him. Jesus, I love that verse in John 1, where Jesus came to explain God the Father. We are to be his living representation on this earth. So it makes sense that I would explain that to my kids and to my kids' kids. So live in a way that explains how real Jesus is in your life. We've we've tried to, to be open about and share our brokenness with our kids so that when brokenness comes to their life, they see that Jesus is real. And that you can never, ever put your hopes and expectations in this world. It is broken. But we tried to teach them to put their hopes and dreams at the feet of Jesus. And to trust him to lead them into his best for their lives. Brokenness will come to your family somehow because we're broken as parents. And the sooner we just get over ourselves and admit that, the better off our kids will be. (laughs) And when you're able to confess to them that you made a mistake, and ask for your child's forgiveness in a real and serious way, not just say, I'm sorry. No, there's, go deeper and speak into their heart and see that it means something to you for them to forgive you. Then it means something to them. You think, well, that make me weaker in their eyes. I'll never do that. I'm Father. No, they will respect you more 
and you will translate from father to dad. Something far bigger than you ever thought. It not only lets them see that Jesus is still working on you as a parent, but it models a grace-filled life for them to follow and carry into their spheres of influence. That's how we make the world salty and draw people to Jesus. Because everybody deep in their soul knows there's something wrong. And when they see salty people, they want to find out why they're so salty. Verse 7 is saying that it is a moment-by-moment commitment. You shall teach them diligently as you walk as you, and talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. There is not a moment, parents, there's not a moment when we are off duty. in pointing our children to God's standard and to God's way. Living out our faith in front of our children and discussing it with them as we walk, as we lie down, as we rise up, makes our faith real and shows that it is a priority to our children. The things we talk about are the things that are important to us. Kids will pick up on that, and it will become their own when it's important to you. If we hope to see our children own their own faith, we must first own it ourselves. So, here's the bottom line. You, mom and dad, you represent God to your child. Who you are, moment by moment, in your home is who your child thinks God is. Think about that for a minute. You are God's representative in your home. And your children think you're just like God. So if you don't take time to purposefully pursue a love relationship with God, uh, with your child, they won't believe that God loves them when he is old. Because you didn't pursue them, God must not pursue me, right? So they doubt whether God loves them. If you don't teach your child to obey when she is older, she will not believe there is any reason to obey God. Why should she? There's never any consequences for not obeying you. Whether Are there any consequences for not obeying God? Probably not. There were any before. Let's go. You see how important it is? Because you represent God to them. So, our faith must permeate every part of our lives. Effective parenting can only occur. Here's here's again the bottom line. This is the one thing we got to walk out of here with. Effective parenting can only occur when we intentionally, diligently, if you will, and sensitively communicate to our children how the word of God permeates every area of our daily existence. There's a 
result of not doing this. It's not pretty, but I need to share it with you. Proverbs 17, 21, and 25 say these things. 17, 21 says, He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. And verse 25 says, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. We must diligently represent God correctly correctly to our children as he instructs us in Deuteronomy. If we do not, the result will be that you have raised a fool who will break your heart. Hear me, church. Hear God. I want to balance out that statement with this next one. God's grace is amazing. And Cindy and I are broken, and yet God knew our want to, and, and we made mistakes every day. But he knew our hearts, and we knew the, the importance of what we were doing, and his grace was poured abundant into our family to fill up every single crack, and there were many. They had me for a day. <laughs> that should explain a lot. But God's grace just has overflowed in their lives. That doesn't mean life has ever been easy for them. In fact, in some of their hearts and lives, it's been really tough. But God's grace covers it all. And we cried out for him teach us and in turn he taught our kids it has to be the trickle down effect folks it has to be or they're not going to get it if you're at a point where you're sensing that God is stirring you to the call of true biblical parenting please hear his spirit speak today And if you find yourself wanting like we found ourselves wanting and yet wanting, wanting to do it but not, but we didn't know how, then cry out to him today. Just like every change, this change begins at the foot of the cross. It starts with you. It starts with your own heart. You may need to gather with your family today. You may need to gather with your spouse today. And, and confess. I mean, we, when we started our serious parenting journey, we had to just get to gather the kids and confess. We, we have not been meeting, we've not been parenting up to God's standard, and we need to ask your forgiveness. Remember that conversation just as clear as yesterday. And they were all sitting around and, Two or three of them, and they're not knowing what we're doing. And it didn't matter. We were starting. But you got to start. And maybe you need to confess that, that you haven't met God's standard of effective biblical parenting. 
If you want to gather your family today, take a moment to do that before you come for communion. Feel free to do that. Maybe you, need, maybe you and your spouse need a moment to, to think and to pray, ask each other's forgiveness, confess, discuss something. Do what you need to do today. But don't slough off the truth that God is trying to speak to your heart. The stakes are too high. The lives of your children are at stake. If you need someone to pray with you, uh, prayer team will be back there. Cindy and I will be back there. The world needs a little revolution. Effective parenting, effective biblical Christian parenting, and effective Christian living can change the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do something mighty in us today. That you would take our brokenness. And our confession. And our weaknesses. And fill them up with your grace. Please move. In power. And in your mercy. Because there's so much at stake, oh God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.